0: Hey there, CNFers. Hope you're having a CNFing good week. My, oh my. Where do we start? Maybe if you're new to the podcast, I should let you know what it's about. This is the show where I speak to the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction. Leaders in narrative journalism, like Susan Orlean. Personal essay, like Matthew Mercier. Memoir, like Pulitzer Prize winner Madeline Blaze. Radio, like Joe Donahue and documentary film like Jeff Krulik and Penny Lane. As of now, it's mainly writers, but I'm scurrying like heck to get more filmmakers and radio producers on the show. It's my job to tease out origins, habits, routines, and points of craft so that you can apply those tools of mastery to your own work. I also hope that in having these conversations, you might also not feel as lonely or alone in your artistic pursuits. You'll notice every single guest has more or less the same set of anxieties that you have, and they manage to get the work done, and great work at that. So I I deal with my own self-hatred and lack of worth from the moment my alarm goes off at 4 a.m. So there you have it. If you have a similar feeling, know that you're not alone. So in any case, today's guest is Cy Montgomery, and you probably know her from her gargantuan bestseller, The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the World of Consciousness. It was a National Book Award finalist and just one, one of the literally dozens of books Sai has written about animals. In this episode, we talk about how Sai got her start as a business writer of all things in Buffalo, New York, belief in projects even when you don't believe in yourself, being open to your expectations of a story changing as you go, and much, much more. Frankly, I came away from this conversation just feeling good, just good. And the people who make you feel that way are the people you want to surround yourself with. And I know I ended that last sentence with a preposition, but whatever. So before I send you off into the animal kingdom with sigh, here's that part where I ask you to leave an honest, not even a positive, just an honest review on iTunes. Any review posted from now through the end of the year gets an hour-long editorial consult from me, which includes this uh, kind of questionnaire I send out, but also um, then I will edit and really crunch down on about 2,000 words of your work, which is about a $50 value if you like putting dollars and cents on things. Simply send me a screenshot of your review and I'll reach out. My pile of editorial stuff is growing thanks to you reviews are the currency we play with now so to reach more people and empower them to do the kind of work they find most inspiring these reviews help the podcast be more visible to those people like yourself all right that was a that was a bit long i know but let's do the show let's do it let's just get right into it here is sai really cool montgomery thanks in, for listening as we're getting towards the end of the year here um at the beginning of the year, uh, let me just back up a little bit. At the beginning of the year, I was talking to a lot of people uh, on the podcast about how they were setting up their year, kind of like those New Year's resolution type things, to so they'd have a good year. And now we're 11 months later, and um, I wonder, like, how are how do you process um, or maybe review the year that you've had and then maybe setting the table to have a good 2018? Like, how are you processing ah. this time of year?
1: Well, um, this year I, I have been dealing with six books at once, and that's too much. <laughs> and I don't want to do that anymore because you feel like you're running out into the street in your bathrobe catching a taxi to the airport every minute. It's terrible. <laughs> and um, I've, I've had lots of experience loving researching and I always love the research but I don't always love the writing part and when you're writing with a gun to your head you really don't like it so um I I have had a a hard time enjoying writing with so many deadlines and so many you know and you look up and there's another one looming on the horizon yeah. so um, this is insane so um I'm I'm not going to do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, here's here's the thing. I mean, I've been doing this full time, working for myself since, gosh, five years out of college. You'd think I would have gotten the hang of it. <laughs> but no, no, it's I, it's I say I say yes too much because I I love all the stuff that I, I work on. And, and I I consider it, you know, not not only is it a joy, but it's it's a. You know, uh, my husband kids me. I'm doing the octopus ministry now, you know, because my last <laughs> book was all of an octopus. Yeah. But, you know, I'm doing stuff that I I deeply believe in. And I and I think, you know, it it, it, it is an honor for me to be part of the, the movement that is, um, I think, changing the way – changing people's relationship with the rest of animate creation. I really think that's happening right now, and I'm thrilled to be part of it. But anyway, I I, I just can't say – yes like i like I've been doing for the past couple of years, so i'm I'm switching to um let me check my calendar <laughs> yeah <laughs> right right i mean it it's sort of a yes, yes, I'll have it how about yesterday that'll work great you know um and but there's you know with solomon Octopus, that that book did very well it's it's now, and it's let's see it's got um we just sold Spanish, so that's 12 languages. Wow. And you feel like, oh my gosh, it's my 15 minutes of fame. I've got to, I've got to say yes to everything because I'm never going to get an opportunity like this. That business part of it, too, is, is actively working. And um, But then I'm going to turn 60 in February. As much as, as I, I love my writing and research, I also love... The little town I live in. I love Thurber, my puppy. I love my husband, who is also a writer, Howard Mansfield. I love it all, and I just have to slow down a little bit. So that's my that's my my goal. Yeah. 2018.
0: Now, are these six book projects that you've got you've got um, in in production? Is this really like a, a direct result of the success of soul of an octopus
1: well you can't really tell you can't really tell but you do kind of think that if you've got a a national bestseller that you're a flavor of the month for a little bit so i pitched all of these things it wasn't like people came to me on their knees oh please write this book but i i pitched them and i pitched them pretty Pretty fast so um, this the six books that are you know in their on their way at some point of the Python you know some of them are fixing one of them's coming out this spring a book on hyenas um, I've got another book coming out for little kids on um, inky the octopus mm-hmm. um, the real octopus who went down the drain and escaped back to his original sea home in New Zealand and then in the fall I have another book um, which is a memoir um, called How to Be a Good Creature, a memoir on thirteen animals. That's coming out in the fall. And I just Monday pressed send on a book on wild beast. That's you know the first draft is done and I sent to my to my editor. And um, last month I got back from the first of two expeditions to um, California for a California condor book. And then I've got. a um, a giant manta ray book that, um, we're still in the planning stages of, you know, doing the, doing the the research and, but goodness, you know, I haven't been diving. I haven't been scuba diving in a couple of years, actually. Huh. And for this, I'm going to need to scuba dive. So, and you, you can't just hope you're going to remember <laughs> as, you go, <laughs> as you go over the boat, you know? So, um, I, I, I I need to have some t- some time brushing up on those skills and oh gosh I don't know what what else is it, what else is in in production I mean there's I I counted it up and there were six um so, I mean, there were so many that I wasn't even keeping track of them. And it was one of those things that I can always tell when I've got too much going on, when I smack my head against hard objects frequently. <laughs> Not on purpose, but, you know, you're like whacking your head as if you can't remember, what is it my neck ends in again? Oh, yeah, it's my head. So when you're getting in the car and you smack your head, and when you're going down the basement and you smack your head, it's kind of like someone slapping you and saying,
0: Get a hold of your life. <laughs> wow. So, all right. So, before before we get to how um, then maybe how you're like peeling back from a lot of that work, I want to say like, you've got those, you've got those projects going in the hopper in various forms of completion. Um, so this past you know maybe year and a half, two years that you've taken on a lot of this work, how have you been? juggling that and how have you been setting up your days so you can you know hit send and meet your deadlines like how have you been doing that
1: well you know i was i was trained as a journalist and right out of well in college i I worked for a daily paper so every day you had a deadline so you you just don't miss a deadline and it also helped that my father was an army general so, discipline was a big thing <laughs> yeah. so i mean i i don't i don't miss i don't miss deadlines um it just doesn't it just doesn't happen it's it's just it's not an it's not an option now you know if if the kakapo is not nesting that year, you can't do the book, so you're not gonna make that deadline or you know if the researcher broke her foot, so you can't do the Altai mountains looking for the snow leopard. Well, that's that's different, but I I always I always make the deadlines, and so that's always priority one. And it really helps to be married to a writer who totally understands that. Um, he actually hired me. Howard hired me mm. um, on the college newspaper, and totally understands deadlines. Totally understands the writing life. So if um, everything in our life, you know, we, we purposely did not have children. However, we we have a border collie and i am now taking him to dance lessons so go figure that one out <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's amazing
1: <laughs> well he's a genius and uh, you know he's making it to his play dates he's making it to his lessons but <laughs> you know it, it, i i guess there's a lot of stuff that i don't do with my life that um that other people do you know um i i don't i don't have to I don't have to pick out what I'm going to wear in the morning, or put on makeup, or, or even comb my hair. <laughs> I work at home. I live in, I I live in a, a little rural town where you know you expect there's going to be chicken shit on the bottom of your sho- your your shoes, and um, you, there's a lot of stuff that we don't we don't have to to worry about. That's how you, that's that's kind of how you do it, and and I'm I'm pretty good about. I mean. In the morning, usually, I mean, today is an exception, but most of the time if the phone rings in the morning, I don't pick it up. In fact, I often just don't even have the ringer on. I don't check my email usually in the morning when I'm actively writing something. You, you The writing is everything. That's what you do. And everything else comes after that. Now, that's kind of not true because the very first thing I do in the morning is I give Thurber an hour-long walk mm. in the woods, but that's really good for your brain.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course. Like, uh, I, there are untold volumes of essays and good work of writers just uh, uh, just waxing poetic about the need for walking as a way, as part of the writing process.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a great Way to sort things out, and also just, just you know, to be in the woods with an animal who you love is is great for me. It's it's great for me because it's it's real. You know, this is as as real as real as it gets, and it tethers you to well, it tethers me to why I do what I what I do, because what I am, what I'm trying to be, in my writing is a, a, a servant to the rest of animate creation and here is one of the emissaries my my joyous intelligent emotional um delighted dog right there reminding me who else is out there and who's counting on folks like me to be their their spokesperson
0: and and when you were you've been doing this kind of you know uh, journalism, freelancing, and so forth. Since uh, five years out of college, uh, is when you were hanging your shingle at that point, so to speak. Did you have this type of naturalist writing, this advocacy for animal intelligence and animate creation, um, from from the get go, or is this something you sort of uh, slowly folded into over the years?
1: Oh, it was definitely from the get-go but you know when you get out of when you get out of college you you got to take whatever job there is and um the the I, I actually started working for the buffalo evening news and i was a business writer i didn't know anything about business i my first story was writing about potholes in parking lots <laughs> and uh so i worked for them for a while but i i I knew the job I wanted. I wanted to work for the Courier News in Bridgewater, New Jersey, New Jersey being the state with the the, um, highest number per capita of scientists and engineers, because I wanted to write about science. I wanted to write about environment, and I I was also interested in in medicine. And that was the job that I got after working at the Courier News for one year as an area reporter. Then I got to be the science environmental writer. So, And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And then after, um, after like, four years on the job, I took um, a vacation with Earthwatch, which pairs paying laymen with scientific projects around the world. And my father gave me a ticket to Australia, and I decided I didn't want to just go vacation there. I wanted to work there for an environmental project. So that's where Earthwatch came in. I worked um, on a project with Dr. Pamela Parker of Brookfield Conservation park um, studying the southern hairy-nosed wombat and after two weeks of living in the field studying these beautiful animals i knew that i didn't want to go back and work at the newspaper anymore this is what i wanted to do full-time so i i quit my job and got a tent and moved to the outback and studied emus wow and I had no money. I was not paid for it. I, my airfare was not paid for, but Pamela Parker paid for my food. I mean, she gave me food that she had on hand for her research park, park and um, I basically had no expenses. So um, that's that's what I did, And I and I lived in a tent for six months and followed emus around finding out what they did all day. And even though, you know, I I loved my job at the Courier News, and I'm still friends with a lot of the folks that I worked with, and they're very talented, and they treated me really well. And I I had, you know, grown a great deal there and had been given a lot of freedom. Um, But after that, I knew that I really needed to work for myself. And um, my husband and I moved to New Hampshire because it had more, tree cover and and more of its original wetlands than any other place that we could find near a major metropolitan area, which was boston mm-hmm. and uh started we both started freelancing I mean we were out on a limit everyone said you're nuts, everybody told me you're insane because i you know I had this great i had this great job and I was given all of these nice raises and I had a lot of freedom within the job but um this was what i i wanted to do and you know so often we writers are told when we do what we believe in that we're crazy and that you really should pick a safer option and yada yada and i have never picked the safe option and i have never regretted choosing what i've chosen ever
0: Wow. So, what gave you, and even uh, what gave you and your husband the the courage to to do that, and to be those full time freelancers, and to you know deal with those ups and downs that comes with uh, you know hanging your shingle as a freelancer? Um, like, how how did you guys weather that, and what were some of those early growing pains too?
1: Well, early on, you know, my my husband worked in a bookstore for part of the time. He worked in the post office. I worked shoveling horse shit in a stable, which, of course, for <laughs> me was very honorable work. I loved being with the horses. Yeah, I was honored to do that for them. Um, and you know, my friends were horrified, <laughs> but, but I I liked I liked doing that. And Howard's time in the bookstore was also extremely useful. I mean, now we have a we still have a very, um, close connection with the bookstore, but that's because they're selling our books. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, my, my, my husband and I both understanding what it means to be a writer, I think, um, was really key. If we had, had any other mate, it would have been Far more difficult, unless, of course, one of us had sense enough to marry, like an astrophysicist or a doctor or a banker or something like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but far more than it, having a, enough money to live. And really, you know, we can live on very little money. Um, Howard and I, we both feel like we have everything we want. We have too many things. We we never like want some other thing. I mean, you want new food every week because you ate the last food. But you know, um, what what else could you possibly want yeah. in the world? There's just stuff everywhere, and if you don't wash your clothes that often, they last forever. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, um, we're very we're very happy. Health care was always interesting in the in the beginning because we didn't have any insurance. But we were young, so nothing weird happened, although I kept flinging myself into jungles. where, <laughs> But here was the thing. I mean, very early on, I got dengue fever, for example, when I was in um, Borneo researching my first book. But even if I'd had money, I was in the middle of nowhere. I couldn't have afforded – I mean, I, I couldn't have found a doctor even if I could have afforded one. So, with a lot of these things, you either like die, in which case, well, you don't have any problems, or or you get better. (laughs) But you know, as far as just um, as far as just having the courage to do what you want to do, what I would say about that, I, I just it's not that hard to do unless you've already tied yourself down to. A whole lot of things, or some other kind of life. I mean, if if you've got ten children, and a mortgage, that's gonna make a different kind of life for you. But we didn't have that. We knew what we wanted, and it was not that hard to have it. The hard part, of course, was getting rejections. It wasn't the the money or the insurance so much, but it's it is hard as a writer getting you know, pitching your stuff all the time. And and of course, you're going to have rejections.
0: Yeah. How how did you uh, deal with uh, rejections and and self-doubt that inevitably creeps in? If you're big projects getting rejected on big projects, if it's that one feels like a gut punch, because you put a lot into it, then there's some of that mercenary work that Sometimes you can get a rejection one day and then send it out the next day and get an acceptance. So, like, how did you deal with sort of those little micro rejections and macro rejections and then still have the strength to keep keep going?
1: I don't always believe in myself. I can't just believe in myself because I'm not that great. But I do believe in my project. Mm. You know, I do believe in my animal teachers, my human teachers, they, they I I believe in the experience that I've had. And so when that gets rejected, I'm looking at, you know, can I can I learn something from that rejection to to make that experience to to f- fulfill what I owe that experience. Um that way you don't feel like you personally have have been rejected, because I think that makes people's ears and tail go down. Mm. And then they want to crawl into a hole and die like a rat who had poison. But uh, <laughs> when uh, when I've always had complete confidence in my teachers and my, my message, so I've never lost faith in that. I just need to be a better messenger. And sometimes the rejections can help you be a better messenger. Other times you just have to to ignore those people because there's no accounting for taste, you know, oh, that dress makes you look fat. well, maybe it doesn't make you look fat <laughs>
0: you
1: <know? laughs> it's 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 just people's taste and and that that person's individual taste on that particular day, but still, just like a focus group, you can take a look at at what those people who who rejected your story said why did they reject it and can you make it better by addressing something then look at them as somebody who's helping you someone who's being useful to you
0: right that um that's real. that's real important the that you mentioned the that the other person's taste on the other line is a mat it's a intersection of maybe what they've already published what they've already accepted timing and even mood for that given day you just
1: right there's right. so many when things when did they eat were they hungry when they you know yeah. they found that that uh judge's verdicts are remarkably different right before lunch and right after lunch for the you could have committed the exact same crime but if <laughs> if the judge decides what to do with you right before lunch you're going to get a much more severe sentence
0: oh my that's, so, that's encouraging.
1: It's, I know, I know. So, I mean, uh, take your editor out to lunch.
0: Yes. <laughs> that's yes, my advice. Yes, give him a delicious sandwich, a healthy side, some sparkling right. water. So, <laughs> so what well, as you were developing the stories that really resonated with your personal taste, these projects that you, even if they were getting rejected, like you deeply believed in, what? Uh, what did those stories look like and like how and what was uh you know how were you advocating for them so eventually you were getting more of those acceptances to allow you to do the work that you felt most strongly about
1: well sometimes it just meant that i had to kind of switch the form um very early i started writing books but continued to write magazine articles and newspaper articles and stuff stuff like that kind of to finance the books and to to forward the research um often i would just find an an editor with whom i i clicked and we would we would discuss the uh the assignment together so that we were both on the same page and could go go forward and then i would stick with that you know what i mean mm-hmm. that 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 was a that was a big help. Um, but you know, I have had some kind of dramatic setbacks. My first book, Walking with the Great Apes, um, which is about Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey and Baruti Galdakas, the first three ladies to to study humankind's closest relatives, and that book is still in print. Um, when I when I first sold it, um, I think it was to McGraw Hill or something, and I had gone to Borneo, where I got dengue fever and I put a lot of research into it already I came home from the, the trip and discovered that the publisher was no longer selling trade books and they had cancelled my contract mm. it had nothing to do with my work but I was screwed <laughs> <laughs> this was bad this was bad so um, my my agent who I didn't know very well. She and I are very good friends now. She's been my agent from the start. And I were thinking, well, we have to sell it somewhere else. Well, my best friend, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, who's considerably older and more experienced than I am and was a multi-bestseller, had her editor over for lunch, Peter Davison, who was the poetry editor for The Atlantic and he had his own imprint at Houghton Mifflin. And she told Peter about me. And my agent the next day sent over my book proposal to Peter. And he accepted that thing and gave me way more of an advance than I'd had from McGraw Hill. Huh. And it worked out being a great thing. But let me tell you, I was I was, you know, feeling like I was hanging over a volcano by the, by a hair thin thread because I'd already put so much into that book and then all of a sudden it wasn't even going to be published. So, and I've, I've had all kinds of things go incredibly wrong. You know, I'm, um, when I went to India and Bangladesh, my first expedition for spell of the tiger, um, as soon as I got to India, which was where I was going to do most of my research, I discovered. That my scientist, my translator, and my engineer, my, um, sorry, my my, uh, uh, speedboat operator, all fell through. Hmm. And when I got myself out to the mangrove swamp where the man-eating tigers lived, then – Civil war essentially broke out in India. It was it, martial law was declared, and people were burning other people alive, and it was just a big mess. And I was I was stuck out in this border area on the border of, of Bangladesh, and I couldn't get out of there, and no one else could go in there. And there I was, without a translator, and everyone speaking Bengali. It was it was a big problem, <laughs> <laughs> but. Almost without exception, every one of these horrendous problems worked out to be a tremendous help. What happened to me when everything fell through in India was that instead of hearing the scientist's story of what was going on, I got to be very good friends with the villagers. And when I went back, and I went back a second time and a third time and even a fourth time, and I got a story that no one else could have ever gotten because no one was listening to what these villagers knew. Mm. Everyone was dismissing them. And they probably weren't particularly eager to tell it to some big deal government official or, you know, because of the caste system and everything. Whereas they were delighted to tell an author. The Bengalis have an incredible literary history and love for literature of all kinds, to the point that these people who were certainly not wealthy, a lot of them did not own any shoes, they didn't have running water, their houses were made of mud, they asked me in Bengali to recite Shakespeare in English for them. They knew who our Shakespeare was. Mm. And then they would recite Rabindranath Tagore, and their great Bengali poets in Bengali for me. They were so respectful of the fact that I was writing a book that they wouldn't let me put my notebook on the ground huh. cuz it was disrespectful to the book. So, I mean, that was incredible the opportunity that I had and I had that opportunity because my original plans were swept away.
0: That's right. It it, it kind of goes to how the whole making lemonade from lemons like the with the The Borneo book, it looked like it was dead, but it just, through sheer uh, endurance and just having the right, you know, making the right connection, that eventually gets greenlit to something better than, a better deal than before. And then with this, this experience in India, it looks like your original plan was, was toast, but what came after just by sticking around and keeping your antenna tuned to the story or to, to to what's happening around you, it turned into something probably better than you could have ever imagined. So Absolutely. Like what, yeah. What, what did those experiences just kind of like teach you about the nature of just kind of hanging around and letting, letting things unfold and then just being open to it?
1: Well, you pretty much named it. I mean, when you're doing nonfiction, you have to let the story speak to you and often when you're doing what I I do, if you're talking to people who live close to the earth, for example, they may tell you things that at first seem impossible. I I did another book called Journey of the Pink Dolphins, and people told me that these dolphins were very difficult to study, by the way. They lived in either very dark or very opaque water. They don't leap out of the water like um, like oceanic dolphins do. These are river dolphins. Uh, so they, they're very they're very hard to, to study. They're hard to even see. Well, the local people would tell me stories about how these dolphins turn into people, and they'll come out of the water, and they'll show up at dances, and they will seduce you. <laughs> and they would tell me that they this had happened to them, and they would tell me that you know in the morning you wake up and your lover has given you a beautiful watch or a lovely necklace, and you look on the night table, and your lover is gone, and the jewelry they gave you has turned to a pile of silvery fish. (laughs) And this would happen to me in West Bengal, in India as well. People would tell me, oh, the tigers, they can become invisible here. The tigers can fly through the air. They would tell me that when a tiger kills a man, when the tiger picks them up, The corpse shrinks to half its size in the tiger's jaws. And I'm writing all this down. I'm listening very carefully to this, and I am not judging it. What I'm doing is listening for their truth. And this is what you do when you fling yourself at nonfiction. You, of course, are forced, unfortunately, to have a preconception because you have to write these stupid book proposals. (laughs) <laughs> saying, this is what I'm going to find out, which is just an exercise in garbage as far as I'm concerned, and I hate it that we have to do that. But you've got to be open to it being a completely different thing, and let it sweep you off your feet like you've fallen in love. And listen to the new truth that you're going to hear, that maybe you're hearing for the first time maybe no one else has heard that truth maybe you're the one that gets to bring that truth to readers all around the world and that has happened to me
0: wow that's incredible and and when you're out in the in the field doing your reporting do you rely on a recorder at all or are you just strictly pen and notebook
1: well i've had some bad things happen (laughs) um I, I really, really did have an orangutan eat my interview tapes oh, wow. in Borneo. <laughs> um, it was horrible. And so even when I tape an interview, I also write everything out verbatim. And the other thing that I have learned is um, to, to duplicate things whenever you possibly, possibly can. And, you know, I, I started doing all of this before there was anything like an Internet – and I, I normally don't carry a computer with me because ants are going to get in there. It's going to fall in the water. A wolverine's going to pee on it. You
0: know? <laughs> uh, so the usual I, things I, reporters are dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> so I try to keep things. I try to keep things simple and. Um, also, a lot of times I have to carry things kind of a long way. I'm so glad I'm not a photographer. And I work with wonderful photographers sometimes, but boy, do they have to schlep a lot of stuff. And I'm so glad I just have like a little notebook and a pencil. <laughs> it's so much easier. <laughs> but it's also a lot easier, you know, to be, be taking notes while you're hiking in the Altai Mountains of the Gobi Desert. Or um, lately, you know, I've been doing some scuba stuff and i have a scuba slate that you can actually take notes underwater but it's it's that's very hard to do i've got to say because of the when you put on your your mask it it distorts your vision and also just by touching your slate the wrong way you can wipe out all of your
0: notes oh wow (laughs) so
1: yeah but um i just kind of keep it simple and at at the end of every day what i do even though it's the last thing you want to do at the end of every day i try to write in a journal longhand not just what happened that day like dear diary but a little essay about what that day showed me or what what the theme of the day was sometimes there is no theme but often there is one
0: Right. That's real valuable. That just adds extra sort of texture to whatever like hard stuff you're able to gather and you almost give it a beating heart that it might not ordinarily have if you were just like writing down like bullet facts and some quotes, I guess.
1: And I often take directly verbatim from my journal. I mean, not just a sentence or a phrase, but largely whole paragraphs. Sometimes the stuff you write in your journal is the best stuff you're going to write. And you think not because you hurt your hand on a stick or, you know, you you, you really needed to get those hundred pepper ticks out of your leg first, but you <laughs> instead wrote what you needed to do or, you know, your sleeping bag got wet and you're not very comfortable, but write the journal first. <laughs> <laughs> Always put that first.
0: Wow. Uh, Yeah, that's. uh, I'm just picturing these, you know, a leg full of ticks, and you're like, Nah, I gotta, I gotta write in the journal first, then I'll worry about picking these things off my body.
1: (laughs) I'll make an exception for leeches. Leeches have to come off before anything else.
0: And uh, you said, you said earlier how, um, how you really like sink yourself and love the research, and the writing is kind of the agonizing part and that's
1: it can be yeah yeah sometimes it's not sometimes it's sometimes it's great but but sometimes it is like pulling teeth
0: yeah so how do you because the research part can be it, it's sort of a fine line between doing too much to avoid the writing or doing just enough doing the research that you need to do to write the thing um but then sometimes you can get lost in wormholes as a form of productive procrastination. So as someone who really loves the research, how do you know when you're done and you're and it's ready to you're like, All right, all right, Cy, I gotta start writing.
1: Well, often my research is largely in the field and the field expedition is over and you're out of money, so you <laughs> So you have to write and you have a deadline. So that's that's how I that's that's how I s I stop the research. Because most most of my stuff I this is this is the order in which the order in which I usually do things. I usually do most of the book research and, and um academic type interviews before I even go into the field. Mm. So I have all that loaded into my brain, um, ready to be surprised. Ready to know like, oh my gosh, what I just witnessed isn't in the literature. Or oh geez, this is exactly what David told me that I would see. Or this reminds me of the thing that, that Jane wrote about in 1960 of a uh, different species over here. So then I go into the field, and then I come back from the field, and I try to start writing as soon as I can. Now, not everything works, works like this. When I did Soul of an Octopus, the field mostly was going to the New England Aquarium every Wednesday but i i i knew when i had finished i knew when i had finished that book um that that book had a a, a very clear point at which i was ending mm. and and that turned out to be when the giant ocean tank which was com- complete i mean i i didn't i didn't plan it this way but when i started my research on um of an octopus uh it's it's a book it's a book about transformation i mean who's more transformational than an octopus who can change color and shape and pour their body through tiny opening right but at the time i was researching this book on transformation the whole aquarium was transforming itself and that center the central pillar the giant ocean tank was being redone yeah so when it reopened and had remade itself, I knew that was when the book, the book would end with that. And it also kind of had to simultaneously end with the death of um, one of the octopuses who had been very um, important to me. So I, I knew when that was going to end, but, uh, and, and that's when I stopped going, going to the field. But usually I plan these things so that the you know I, I do the, I do the, the book and interview research. I then do the field research. I come home and bang. I write it.
0: Hmm. Was that refreshing in a sense when you were doing *Soul of an Octopus*? That the structure kind of revealed itself in the construction of that new great ocean tank.
1: Oh, I couldn't believe it! I was so lucky with that book, man. I was unbelievably blessed. Wilson Menashe, who is the octopus enrichment guy and one of my close friends now, he constantly says to me, you know, you could not have written that book today because things, the things that were going on, the people who were there, um, the the whole setup for being with the octopuses, none of that had ever happened before. And things have been so remade that it, it never will happen again in that in that way. So I I just got I just let the, the octopuses lead me I just let the the story completely take me and sweep me away and all I had to do was see what the story was it was laid out for me yeah and and that has happened over and over and over and this is why I I I just hate having to write these stupid. Book proposal. I think of them as a, a selling tool, and I understand why the publishers have to have them because they want to know that six other books just like this one sold great. Okay, so I, 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 you can just see my, my disdain for having to do this, and I also find it personally insulting. But, um, because, gosh, don't you trust me now? I've written 23 books or 24 books, but anyway, um, it just ain't the way it used to be. But you just got to be open to the sweep of the story and be free to let yourself go. Go with it and be surprised and be educated and be delighted and and experience the sorrow. And, I mean, that's the the joy of nonfiction. And it probably is the joy of fiction, too. I just don't know how to write fiction, so I don't know what that's like.
0: <laughs> and do you go into a project, taking Soul of an Octopus as an example, like when you started that, did you basically – not know you may know, you knew basically oh yes an octopus has eight arms and uh that's kind of all i know and then you go in and then just totally write what you don't know so that way you're open to learning the whole thing or do you sometimes go in with oh i have a general understanding but i'd love to just take a deep dive with some experts so like, peak. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Good metaphor. yeah yeah so yeah um, what's your starting I... point typically with those
1: I did know um that octopuses were smart, and the the whole reason I chose octopus was that here is a mollusk. you know mollusks are snails, mollusks are clams, clams do not even have brains. Here is a mollusk who is smart. Here is a you know a marine invertebrate, which is what most of animals are on the planet, who is smart. Can I get to know someone like this? And if so, what are they like? Do they have consciousness? What is consciousness? So, um I knew when I walked through the doors of New England Aquarium with an assignment from which I had pitched to Orion magazine. I I knew that I that there could be some very rich material there. I didn't know what it was. And I also did not know that I could become friends with an octopus. But the minute I met Athena, the minute this intelligent creature looked me in the eye. Her eye swiveled in its socket, locked on my face. Mm. And she slid over from her lair and she changed color with emotion. I mean, she felt something about coming over to see me and I could see it on her skin. I could see her attention riveted on me. I could see the curiosity of this animal. How many people have that experience with any marine creature other than maybe a dolphin, or, you know, a sea turtle. But how many people even experience that with a fish? But how many people experience that with a mollusk? Mm-hmm. And so I knew this is about consciousness. This is about intelligence. This is about um, the nature of our souls. And I, I knew it was the most important book that that I could write at this time in in my career. And I knew also that I had been working up to writing about invertebrates for a long time. Um, my first book, you know, being about walking with the great apes, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, Bruta Galdacoste, and the animals who are so closely related to us, you can get a blood transfusion from a chimp. You know, I, I knew that um, these, these are animals who are easy for people to relate to, and particularly when I'm standing on the shoulders of these these giant women, these great leaders in ethology at a time when women in science was a, a kind of hot new thing. Um, and, and from there I continued to write about large vertebrate animals. I wrote about tigers, and I wrote about dolphins, and I've written about birds, and I wrote about my relationship with my my pig who was a great big Buddha master, you know, that <laughs> kind of of thing. But I knew all this time that if if I got wise enough and if I was able to find the right teachers, that I would love to write about invertebrates because most of us here on earth are invertebrates and no one writes about them. No one knows anything about them.
0: Yeah, and why do you think that it connected so so strongly with people, the soul of an octopus.
1: Wow i i I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> My husband's even more unsure. I think if he'd been hit on the head with a meteor, he couldn't have been more surprised than how well this book did. But people, I I don't know. Um, I I do think that people are interested in other minds now in a way that they haven't been in the past. And it's something that I've been working toward along with a lot of my my colleagues and friends like, well, Jane Goodall, Barbara King, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, um, t- tons of uh, Sue Savage-Rumbaugh. Um, Brenda Peterson, I could just keep keep on naming Diane Ackerman. Um a lot of women, aren't they? Yeah. But there's been a lot of interest lately that I think has been building for a long time, and I I don't think it's anything I did. To be frank, um, I I think it's what the zeitgeist, and I think it's what these. These individual animals who I knew gave me, they gave me so much of themselves when they gave me their friendship, and their friendship was irresistible.
0: Who were, as you, you know, you've written so many books, and uh, who were people early on and then even as you progressed that you found yourself... um reading or re like rereading, and also writers that you might have like modeled yourself after as you were trying to develop your own voice?
1: Well, my favorite writer of all time is a guy I married, is Howard <laughs> Mansfield. He is, and his talent is so much greater than mine. He writes about totally different things, although we both are trying to kind of hold the world together. He writes about... Um, preservation. He writes about the souls of towns and of buildings and of streets and of houses. Um, He writes about what museums have to tell us. At heart, we sort of are writing about the same thing, but I'm writing about the animal world and he's writing about the human world. So um, I've always been one of his first readers and he's always one of my first readers and I've learned a lot from him. My best friend is Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, who is an incredible writer. I I grew up reading Farley Moat. Um I I grew up reading people who who understood that animals had thoughts and feelings and minds, you know, like Pope Ryden, um I read everything Jane Goodall ever wrote. I read everything. Well, Diane Fossey wrote a beautiful book, Gorillas in the Mist. And Maruta um, Galdikas wrote her books after I wrote mine, I think. But her books are, are beautiful, too. Um, but I do mostly, with the exception of Howard, I, I mostly read about animals and about the natural world. Now, I recently read that wonderful book, The Hidden Life of Trees. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's that knocked my socks off.
0: Well you talk but about the world so- is this oh sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I was gonna say, yeah, you talk about um, you know, these animals like mollusks mollusks in uh an octop- octopus that you didn't I mean, that, that most people didn't realize have consciousness and feeling and even and memory. And so like you reading uh Peter Wallabin's uh, Hidden Life of Trees, like there's another thing like do the do the you know, plants they'll well the trees they'll help out an injured tree. Like if there's a tree cut down, they don't know it's cut down, they know it's hurt. They'll funnel resources to it. So it's like right. it that's kind of g- goes right to what you're doing. You're sort of just peeling back the the levels of you know what we understand these uh, you know giving giving a greater sense of uh, sort of consciousness and mindfulness to things that we often think oh well they're subordinate to to us so they can't possibly have this degree of you know sentient thought or something
1: yeah exactly exactly there's a wonderful quote attributed to Thales and Miletus, and it goes like this it says the universe is alive and has fire in it, and is full of gods. And to me, that's what I get to be learning in my research, that the world is far more animate and far more exciting and far more holy than most of us might at first imagine.
0: And so you, you mentioned a, uh, a lot of great writers there, your husband included. Um, what are some books that you find yourself revisiting over and over again uh, just to see, try to see how they're working and get into their bones a bit?
1: Well, you know, I kind of don't look behind the curtain when I read. Mm. I just let it sweep me along. And I think it just seeps into you. I mean, maybe this is just me being lazy. But I, uh, the cadences of the Bible, for example, when I was growing up, um, were part of my literary tradition very much, and also as a public speaker, I do a lot of speaking now, and a lot of the preachers that I met in church were really helpful. My father was a general, and he would be called upon to give speeches as well. But whether it's speech or whether you're reading it, I think it just kind of seeps into your, into your body. And you feel like what you're absorbing is the story, but it's also the language at the same time. But the language, a lot of times the best language is just completely transparent, as you know. My husband reads poetry in the in the mornings. Um he's reading a lot of Elizabeth Bishop these days, which is a lovely way to start your morning. But I mean my poetry is is walking in the woods with with my dog Thurber.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and and how have you uh cultivated a sense of of maybe like, of patience in your work uh over the years to let things unfold as they as they can as especially when you're young you know you're you're, you want to like you're you're hungry for that toehold and that that validation and I wonder like when you were getting started and how were you able to be patient enough to let that toehold come when it came and then how did you just manage to run your own race and just get those early victories to snowball you towards where you are now
1: well I certainly was very nervous (laughs) (laughs) I mean you have this you have this feeling that you can fail your destiny you know I had all of these wonderful animals that were helping me and what if I just wasn't good enough and was going to fail them and I felt that all the time I felt so nervous about it all the time and I wish I could go back and tell my young self that you do have to work really hard but it's not you that's gonna succeed. What's gonna succeed is the message that you get to hear. You know what I mean? It's not it's kind of like not about you, you have to work your tail off. But it's that pure message that's going to eventually get through. Trust your teachers, trust your trust your material, trust your message. And um if you if you just work hard at it you will succeed just like you want to be a great concert pianist. Well, it's easy. All you have to do is practice every day for five hours. That may not be true. I mean, there's, there's also some degree of talent, but I certainly know I am no more talented than, than anyone else. Just lucky.
0: Yeah. And well, luck comes to those who are, who put in the work and are, they're prepared and the opportunity intersects with, with the hard work. And, is a he, uh, concert pianist is a great sort of analogy like when they you know they play their their scales over and over again and i wonder what are how would you define writer scales and what does hard work look like for you so that you've done hard work and then you can be ready for when the opportunity strikes
1: oh that's a very that is a very smart question well the hard work Means you know covering all the bases if you're doing if you're doing research just leave no stone unturned wait until you're getting the same answer over and over and over <laughs> again um and uh don't you know don't don't quit early and be you know be creative about uh, you know all the all the bases you know covering all of all of those bases um but the other the other um the other advice I would have for people and this has gone a hell of a long way for me, is just be really courteous to all of your sources. Mm. Because they'll want to talk to you again. They'll want to help you if you're super courteous and if you send them the article that you wrote or if you, you know, fact check the thing with them and make sure that everything is correct. Just simple Simple courtesy in doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it goes a heck of a long way, and then your sources who are helping you are going to call you up with their ideas. Um, they're going to they're going to help you in all kinds of they're going to help give you connections and and help you in every way. That that's I think that's probably the one thing that I've consistently done right is I've I've tried to be really courteous. But I think, I've, I think I've somehow just started losing track of what the first – what does hard work look like? Sometimes hard work just looks like doing what you said you were going to do when you said you were going to do it.
0: Mm.
1: And you would not believe how few people do that these days.
0: Huh. Why do you think that is, that there's this a tendency to shortchange that? Thing that sounds so simple on on the surface of just holding up your end of the deal, basically.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. What do you think?
0: I, I don't. I. It could be as, perhaps people are so bombarded with, uh, very like getting peppered with various distractions that sometimes it's easy for an email that you wanted to timely respond to somebody get it starts to move farther and farther down the inbox or or uh, yeah or just texts and tweets and other kind of notifications that pop up on people's phones and computers that it's just it's like the mind's getting hit from so many angles that perhaps it's just easy to sweep common courtesy under the rug for the for just to to, to be biting at various sweet treats that just pop in every now and again. I I don't have a good answer for that myself. I I know that, like you, the only thing I probably have as someone who is not very well known in this line of work is to to be courteous and to be timely and not only meet my deadline, but meet it by a week and try to make my editor's job as easy as possible because I'm just that grateful and grateful for that opportunity and it sounds like you come from a similar place
1: yeah absolutely i think that that and and i i think that also kind of prepares prepares your heart to do a a good job in the world in general you know and it keeps us it keeps us humble and and gratitude keeps us humble and being grateful like what you just said being grateful for this opportunity um I think that fills that fills your whole, your whole life. I think it fills your work too, and that's the the point that I want to be writing from, from a point of gratitude.
0: And, and do you find that writing about the natural world and, and animals has uh, reaffirmed your? It gives you it gives you that that footing of of gratitude and sort of that you're you know, a greater part of the animal kingdom too? Like it kind of, I don't know, gives you a, gives you more energy than maybe writing about people when you're. Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, I've always, I I, I like people and, you know, I married one and everything, but, um, I, I, I'm much more, I'm much more interested in the other because it is other. Hmm. And I love ex- exploring. That doesn't mean I don't love the familiar, but I love to explore. And I, I find the world gets wider and wider as you see it through other, not just other eyes, but entirely other senses. And that's what animals let you do.
0: mm yeah, it's kinda of like when you're when you're walking your dog in the mornings like if you just take a peek and look at like the happy smile on your dog's face as you're taking that walk, it like totally imbues the walk with a different set of experiences. It's seeing the world through the through the dog's eyes, if you will. It's like, Wow, this is this is a pretty lucky and joyous thing I get to do every morning.
1: <laughs> you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But you know what? I'm going to have to go to the dentist.
0: That well, <laughs> oh, I'm glad I can send you off to the to the dentist. I was, well, Cy, this was what a, what a pleasure to get to speak to you uh, about your work and uh, octos and other kinds of animals. This was a a lot of fun, and uh, maybe when your uh, when your memoir comes out, we can have you back on and talk a little more shop and and uh, how you came oh, to that I book. Would love that. Oh, this Brendan,
1: is- I'd love to do that. That would be fabulous. I'm going to pass your name on to the publicist and not lose track of you. So oh, this was a real pleasure. Thank you for all your smart questions and your good listening and, and letting me connect with your listeners.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you, and uh, we will certainly be in touch. And keep up the great work, Cy. Si. Thanks again.
1: Thanks so much.
0: All right. Take care. Bye. Yeah, baby. That's another CNF and conversation in the books. Thanks to Cy Montgomery, at Cy, the author on the Twitters. I'm at Brendan O'Meara on the Twitters. Feel free to reach out with feedback and maybe what you want to hear and maybe what you're even struggling with. That'll help me maybe pinpoint some questions at these people and be like, you know what? These are what is concerning you. So maybe I can ask them and then they're just going to offer their brilliant insights of how they deal with it. That might help you out. So don't be shy. And if you're feeling froggy and want an extra monthly nugget of goodness, I have a monthly newsletter that I send out on the first of the month with my book recommendations and what you might have missed from the world of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. I plan on adding some extra goodies to the newsletter in 2018, but in the meantime, it's books and pods. Once a month, no spam, and you can't beat it. Have a CNF and good week, friends, and we'll do it again next week with another conversation from the world of creative nonfiction. Thanks for listening.